All right. Uh, so last week and to this and tonight, we're we're talking about uh, what happens in between the point of death and the second coming and the the resurrection. Right. That's kind of where we started with the idea of resurrection, and that that's really the the big focal story of uh, of scripture. Right. About God raising us up and recreating us, and then we looked at the idea of uh, how God is recreating all creation in the end, right? The new heavens, the new earth, or the restoration of all things. And those kind of go together, right? That God isn't giving up on creation, but God created it and said it was good. And so in the end, God is going to, to make it good again. But so that still raises the question, all right? Well, what about until then, uh, when, when people die? And so last week, we looked at a few passages that talk about that, right? Where Jesus, for example, on the cross, tells the thief will be in paradise, or some scenes in Revelation where there are, are um, martyred Christians uh, under the throne of God. And those seem to point in the direction of there being some sense that we are with God in that interim period or intermediate, intermediate state, as, as I'm kind of calling it here. Um, and so uh, we're going to look at a few more passages that talk about that same idea or, or don't, right? Really, with, with this whole topic, um, you know, there's plenty of passages we can look at, and, and obviously I have things to say about them. Uh, but to me, it's still a little bit of a gray area, and it's, it's not a perfectly clear about the state. You know, so whether it's that we are conscious uh, and, and with Christ in heaven, or if it's uh, kind of the idea that you're basically sleeping until Christ returns, Either one is still, I think, a comforting image, just in different ways. And, um, and so at the end of the day, it doesn't change a whole lot, but it's something that, that we're curious about. And when we th we're thinking about, right, we're thinking about specific people here, we're thinking about people that we love, um, we want to know. We want to know in what sense they're okay. And so that's why I think it is still a worthwhile topic to discuss. But <laughs> I say all that to say, uh, you know, I could be wrong about some of these things, or with some of them, maybe we're not going to come to a perfect conclusion. Uh, well, the first passage we're going to look at is Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. So this is when Paul is in, in prison, right? Philippians is the prison letter. Um, and so here he's writing really in, in, at a point where he's contemplating his own death. Right? We had seen in earlier letters, like in 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians, um, Paul thought he would still be alive when Jesus came back. Right? Again, either way, he was a bit off pace with that since we're 2,000 years later. Uh, but now he's starting to think about the idea of, well, he might actually uh, die before Jesus comes back. And so uh, here we're going to see him kind of, I would say, contemplating his mortality a little bit. Um, but we're going to look at some specific things he says here about uh, the state of how that might, might be. So uh, Philippians 1, starting in verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, well, that means fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. 
since I'm convinced of this, I know that you will remain and continue with all, I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. All right, so uh, some people I think misread this and think that he's almost like suicidal. I, I don't think that's the idea. He's just thinking about like, oh, I might die. And I don't know which I prefer, right? I think that's a better translation there. And so he's torn, right? Is it better for me to die and be with Christ? Or is it better for me to stay and, and be with you? Um, and so the focus here, though, at least, is this idea that he says he would, if he died, he would be with Christ, right? That's in verse 23, to depart and be with Christ. And so from that perspective, it seemed like he's, saying in some sense that, that when we die, we go and we are with Christ, right? So that points more in that going somewhere in this intermediate state rather than just being asleep, right? Although you could, again, still understand being asleep as, as being with Christ. But it seems to be more that it's, it would be consciously with, with Jesus somehow. Uh, but again, his, his struggle is, well, yeah, that's, and that would be better for me personally right? If it were just about what Paul wants, well, of course, I want to go be with Jesus. I don't want to be with you people. <laughs> uh, and so it's, I think it's kind of interesting here to think about for all of us um, is, are we living, are we thinking about what's better for us? Or are we thinking about what is better for everyone else? And what's more Christ-like, right? That's that famous verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? If he died, he would gain uh, being with Christ. But if he lives, he actually gets to be Christ-like because he can help these Philippian Christians and other Christians. He can do Christ-like work if he were still on earth, as hard as that might be. And so I guess the question we have to think about is how much are our heavenly hopes sometimes almost selfish, right? Uh, that, or they're just centered on ourselves, what we want. Um, can we be selfish about, about heaven? So I don't know, what do you think about that? Have you, do you see any ways that that might happen? That we could somehow be selfish about uh, our eternal fate? Or, or maybe not selfish, but self-centered. Is there any such thing as true altruism, right? It, right. You yeah, kind of have a, a, a selfish motive behind everything at some point. I think, I mean, Paul's just saying something I think we've all run into. If, if heaven's great and we want to be with Jesus, which is great, Mm -hmm. Well, then you don't fear death. Yeah. In fact, it sounds kind of good sometimes, like if you're really <laughs> yeah. sick or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that's selfish. I think that's just mm -hmm. a natural, of course. You, yeah. you, I mean, even Jesus yeah. himself, right? He's, at, there were times he said, I don't want to do, in the garden, right? I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. I yeah. We'll go through this. Yeah. But. Hey, George. <laughs> well, you know, and you know, I've heard all my life, you know, people talking about uh, something happened to them that may, they may die and they'll say, Oh, uh, well, it, it beat, you know, living, it beats the alternative. And, and I've come to realize as I've gotten older, uh, and, and of course, as my body has gotten older, I've realized that the alternative may be pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, I see where he is. And sometimes I even feel that way. I think, you know, I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, you know, yeah. I've, 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 I've Mm -hmm. You know, what, what else is there left to do? Sometimes you wonder, and you have to really mm -hmm. sit down and, and, and have a, a self-talk to say, no, there's obviously something left for me to do, or I wouldn't be left here. And so I need to just get on with it and do it. 
yeah, every day that we have is a chance to be Christ, right? That's kind of where he comes down, right? In the end, he says, it'd be better that I stay with you and, and do more good. Um, and so, I th yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. We all have to balance that, right? That we don't become too self-centered and think it's all about me getting to heaven, uh, but that, you know, we use our life the way that we've got it, uh, whoever it is. Um, and so, again, we looked at this verse, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago, but in chapter 3, verse 21, where he talked about us being citizens of heaven, there he got, does get into uh, that big final picture of resurrection, right? There he talks about the transformation of our bodies, right? So in the same letter, right, he still has both. So there's, that's still the final hope. And yet there's a sense that we can be with Christ until Jesus comes and transforms us. All right, uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, this is another letter that's probably, he wasn't in prison at the time, I don't, I don't think. I can't remember. Uh, but it's a, he's in a similar kind of state of mind, right? Thinking about um, now he's, he's thought about that he might die before this. And he's gone through a lot of suffering. A lot of 2 Corinthians is Paul talking about what he suffered as an apostle and how that actually makes him uh, a more Christ-like apostle. Um, and so he, here he's talking about this hope that we have, right? And, and what we're dealing with now versus what we'll have someday. And uh, this is a passage that we looked at uh, when I, had, I was going to be gone and I recorded uh, a class and sent it out. So some of you may have seen that, but I know some probably didn't. Uh, so we won't talk about everything in here, uh, but he's using these metaphors. He's actually mixing his metaphors, which I know is, is not uh, English teacher approved. Uh, but it is this metaphor of buildings and clothing right, to talk about the different states. And so it's like right, right now, he says, we live in an earthly tent, which is, it's fine, right? Living in a tent's okay, but it's not the best. And we don't want to be homeless, basically, to not have a tent. We want this upgraded building, which is what the resurrection body is. And so in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about this, this building from God. That's referring to the resurrection body, not a heavenly home, right? We, we sometimes import that idea, I think, from a certain way of reading John 14, but he's talking about the body that, that we hope to have, right? We don't want to be, uh, right now, again, to use the clothing metaphor, right now our clothing is a bit shabby. We don't want to be unclothed or naked. We want to be fully clothed with this uh, beautiful clothing that God is going to give us. That's what the resurrection body is like. All right. Uh, but that's, that's uh, aside from the point that we're looking at tonight. So we're going to look at verses 6 through, through 9. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, where we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, make it our aim to please him. All right, so again, it's, I think it's very similar to Philippians 1, that he's just acknowledging the tension. Yeah, it'd be better to, to be with the Lord. And then there's a sense in which when we're in this body, we're not with the Lord. There's a sense in which we are, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit and, and Christ is present. But right, it, we're not with Christ the same way that we'll be someday. And, and so he's just kind of acknowledging that, yeah, we're, we would love to be fully with the Lord. And while we're here in this state, uh, we're, not, we're not fully there experiencing everything we want to. So that's the hope. Um, all right, he's talking about the body as it is now, right? Again, as, as I said, the other time that we looked at it, 
Paul is not anti-material, uh, right? That's, that's Greek philosophy. He's just talking about this, a body like this is not something you want forever, right? So the resurrection is actually perfecting this body. So right, if you check this one passage out of context, it would seem to speak against the idea of a bodily resurrection. But uh, Paul, I think, has a consistent view of this. And so we want to fit this into everything else that he says about our hope being resurrection. Uh, so it doesn't deny anything that was in 1 Corinthians 15 about resurrection. Uh, and so he's talking about just kind of how we are now and, you know, that we can go. But again, the point, thinking about this intermediate state is going to, to be with the Lord as, as kind of intermediate time before we have the resurrection body. I just, a, a few verses earlier, I think he kind of clarifies himself that he's not talking about leaving the body, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, what, verse three or something? Or we, we don't want to unclothe ourselves. We just want to, like, a better clothing. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the metaphor, right? Because, again, this is something we talked about earlier, but I know some of you weren't in, uh, haven't been in all the classes. But the idea that the real you is just this immaterial soul, and that soul needs to escape this body that's terrible. Uh, that's Greek philosophy. That's Plato, not Paul or scripture. But that's, that's so much in the DNA of, of our culture that we kind of read that into scripture and uh, misread a lot of what, what it's actually saying. Yeah. So bodies are not created. Things are not inherently bad because God created them. Uh, now we can all acknowledge ways in which bodies are flawed, <laughs> some, some more than others. Uh, but that just means God is going to fix them. Uh, <laughs> I was pointing at myself, and Jane is commenting if you can hear. All right, uh, let's go to Acts chapter 23. Acts 23. This is a point where uh, Paul is in trouble, as he often is in Acts. Here he's in trouble with the Jewish council, and so he's going to use the issue of resurrection to distract uh, his, his opponents. Uh, but it's going to give us some insight into what people thought about the state of, of the dead. And, and I, I mentioned that just to say, right, this is getting some insight about what people thought, not necessarily how it's actually going to be. In fact, that's, that's a bigger conversation that we, we could have of, you know, how much did Paul, like, know exactly, right, that, like, Jesus had told him this is what it's going to be like, and how much was he just kind of working through based on what he knows about God, to, to figure out what this will be like, right? That you could say he's almost speculating, but not, you know, guided by the Spirit. But I just say all to say, it's not like Paul, uh, I don't think, was given every detail about every single thing from God somehow, and he just communicated some of it. It's, you know, he knew what he needed to know, just like we do, and he knew enough about God to be able to work some things out. Um, but, right? Nobody's seen the resurrection yet, so we're always uh, trying to say as much as we can, but not say too much. All right, Acts chapter 23, we're going to read verses 6 through 9. All right. When Paul noticed that some, right, this is some of the council that's accusing him, some were Sadducees and other were Pharisees, he called out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dissension began between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection for angel or spirit, 
but the Pharisees acknowledged both or all three, depending on your translation. We'll talk about that. Then a great clamor arose, and certain scribes of the Pharisees' group stood up and contended, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? All right, and then it becomes violent, and it all just falls apart. So Paul kind of gets out of it. All right. So here we have this debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And we'll talk more about the Sadducees uh, in a couple of weeks. There's a story in the Gospels where they confront Jesus, the question about the resurrection. Uh, but it's clear from there and other places that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Right? I think that was a minority view by that point in Judaism. It's hard to know for certain. But uh, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture, and it doesn't really refer to resurrection, right? Really, the only place in resurrection that you see, or in the Old Testament you see resurrection, is Daniel and maybe some Psalms that allude to it, right? So it's an idea that is really understood later. And in fact, uh, Josephus, a famous early historian from, from the same time period, said, the Sadducees hold the soul perishes along with the body, right? So in their view, when you die, that's it. Uh, nothing else happens, right? So only, the only thing that matters is this life, which, through, again, like I said, through most of the Old Testament is the view. Uh, they weren't focused so much on what happens when you die, and they didn't seem very uh, clear about that. And so it's more about living a good life now and, and passing things on to your children so that um, they can live a good life too, which is not a bad perspective, right? We don't want to lose sight of that uh, and forget that this life does matter, but we can say that there's more to the story. Now, the, the interesting thing here is, is, is especially verse 8, right, where Luke is kind of giving us some extra information, uh, because it says they don't believe in an angel or spirit, um, which angels show up, right, in Genesis. And so you would think that if we're just talking about these divine messengers, then the Sadducees should believe in them. So that might be a clue that it's referring to something else. And the same for, for spirits, right? You could see evidence of that, I think, in those, those first books. So when it's talking about that, that might mean something else. Now, another thing I mentioned was that there's a little bit of confusion. You might see this if you look at different translations of the end of verse 8, uh, right? They say there's no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, uh, but... Pharisees confess both of them, right? The word that Luke uses there more typically means both, not all three, right? Because it seems like it's talking about three things, resurrection, angels, and spirits. Uh, but another way, of, I think a better way of translating that is there's resurrection, and then there's angels and spirits. Those are sort of, I think actually, in this context, referring to the same thing, right? Here, I think, is, is getting this, at this idea that the angel or spirit refers to the state of a person before the resurrection, right? This intermediate state after death, before uh, the final resurrection, right? And probably more, it means like an angel, right? Uh, not that humans become angels. That's a common misconception. Uh, we'll, again, talk about that with uh, the Luke 20 passage. Jesus says we'll be like angels, but he does not say that we become them. Uh, and that's a common thing you'll hear people say, right? Oh, God need another angel, which is problematic for a lot of reasons. Uh, but we don't become angels. Uh, that's, that's not uh, a scriptural view. But it seems, right, maybe back then, just like now, some people mistakenly think, think that. Or it's just kind of this, this intermediate state, right? A spirit is kind of in between. 
And another reason we can, we can read it that way is to go back to Acts chapter 12. We get another story of someone thinking they see a spirit or an angel. Let's go to Acts chapter 12. This is uh, a little bit earlier on, right? So persecution is just starting to break out against the church. Uh, the apostle James has been killed, and then Peter gets thrown in jail, right? And so probably Peter and a lot of the church think, oh no, Peter's going to get killed too. And so you have, but then you have this miraculous delivery, uh, right? He's released from prison, and uh, right because the whole church has been praying that he get released. And then you get to, he, so he leaves and he goes to the house where the house church was meeting and they don't let him in because it's like, no, he, Peter's in prison, right? They prayed for this and they don't believe that it happened, which I think is an interesting lesson in and of itself, right? That we don't expect what we pray for. Uh, but so the, the, the servant who answers the door, uh, she's so excited actually that she hears it's Peter. She doesn't let him in. She goes and tells everybody first. So he's just kind of left standing there. It's kind of a funny story. And so the people, they say to her, verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted it was so. And they said, oh, it's his angel, right? Uh, so I think what they're saying there is, oh, well, you just saw like Peter's spirit, his angelic form, right? He, he died. And so you just, he appeared to you in a vision, sort of, as his spirit was going to heaven, I guess, right? Uh, I don't think, right, if, if it's his guardian angel, why would she mistake that for Peter unless unless our guardian angels look like us, right? Even that guardian angel idea, I don't think has a lot of scriptural support either. So it's more likely that the way that the term angel is being used here refers to that spirit in between the point of death and the final resurrection. Let's go uh, to where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to spend a little bit more in Luke chapter 16. This is going to be the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, this is a pretty important passage because of how much gets used from it. And um, what I really want to focus on is to ask, how much do we want to take from, from this to understand the actual state of things? So uh, Luke 16, starting in verse 19, in the, the chapter. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received many your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one could cross from there to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Right? A little subtle note to Jesus' own resurrection there. All right, so the first thing, uh, the main thing I want to emphasize is that the parable of the rich man of Lazarus is a parable, right? So think of it like you would, uh, interpret it like you would any other parable, right? Um, and you notice, right, and I've, uh, a comment I've heard from people is, well, it says there was a rich man, right? As if to say, like, well, no, Jesus says it happens. We'll look at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Uh, we have another parable, the dishonest manager, which starts the exact same way. There was a rich man, right? Uh, it's, it's just a way of starting the story. It's not an indication of, well, these are the facts. This is something that actually happened. That's just the way that Jesus would start his parables, right? It's the same for us. If you hear a story that starts with the phrase, once upon a time, you actually know that means this didn't happen, right? That means it's, it's not a true story. But if you didn't know that English idiom, you would think, you could hear that and think, oh, well then this author is saying this is something that really happened, right? It, it means the opposite. So I, I say, let's say, right, we talked about this before, uh, with, with differences in language, idioms can be lost in translation. And so that's, that's not an indication that, because he says there was a rich man that, that it really happened. Uh, and actually in other literature around this time from different sources, we see this type of story is used often, right? The story of someone dying and, and what happens to them afterwards uh, as, as a way to encourage people to live a certain way. Right? And so I would just say, take this story as literally as you would any other parable, right? I always say that with parables and, and other metaphorical language in scripture, it's true, but not necessarily literal, right? This is a modern kind of idea that, that things that are literal are the things that are most true. And, and that comes from our perspective. That's something we're importing to scripture, not something that uh, is inherent to it. And for most of Christian history, that hasn't been the way that it's understood, that the literal meaning is the best or truest meaning. Uh, and to me, it's odd that we would take the least down-to-earth parable in the Gospels more literally than any other, right? Well, the, the guy who's throwing seed, well, that was just a story. But this is really something that happened, right? Where this there's a conversation between people and uh, between Abraham and someone in Hades. Uh, and so I would say don't form beliefs about the afterlife that can't be supported from other sources. Just if it's only based on this parable, that's not really the best source because it is a parable. Right. And so the, the, instead we need to focus on, well, what is this parable actually about? Jesus wasn't telling this parable to teach things about the afterlife. He was telling it to talk about wealth and how we use our wealth, and what that says about our hearts, right? which is a very common uh, subject that he just talks about, especially in, in Luke's gospel. Wealth is one of the most common things he talks about, uh, which is ironic because that's one of the, things, the last things that we want to <laughs> actually have Jesus address. We want to do what we want with it. Right? Uh, here and in many other places, uh, right? and this is, we'll go back to verses 13 and 14, right? That's where he says you can't serve God and mammon or wealth or stuff. Uh, and then he talks, he's talking to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, it says. Right? So this is the context of who and what he's talking about. Um, and he's, I think he's dealing with a common assumption that if you're wealthy, that means that God is blessing you for being a righteous person. Right? And you can find ideas that support that in Scripture, Deuteronomy especially, 
has that perspective. If you live right, then you'll be blessed. And if you don't live right, then, then you're going to be poor. And so you can work from that to say, oh, well, we can look and see if someone's rich, they must be a good person. If they're poor, they must be a bad person, right? But uh, there's also places in the Old Testament that challenge that, like Job or Ecclesiastes. Uh, and so I think Jesus is working against that too. And so he's showing here that instead, uh, it's not the rich that automatically go to Abraham's side. Uh, it's the poor person who is in the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom works upside down from what we expect. And so I think that's the reason why Lazarus gets a name and the rich man doesn't, right? Because that's another uh, counterpoint that I hear of, oh, well, he named somebody, so he must, Lazarus must be a real person. Uh, Lazarus means God is my help, which I think is uh, very appropriate to the parable. It's not just a random name. And again, if you're going to name somebody, you would name the rich person, right? Because he's important. No, he doesn't get a name. Uh, sometimes he's called Dives, but that's just the Latin word for rich. And so that's, that's not his name. Right? Again, it's, it's irony. The important person is anonymous. The poor beggar, he gets named. And there's other problems with, with uh, a literal reading of this parable, right? For one thing, uh, when you look at this, what is judgment based on? And you can uh, reply to this one. Uh, look especially uh, what Abraham says to him in verse 25, right? What is judgment based on? Where you end up is, is due to what? If you're going to read it in a simple way, what is what are you saying? It makes it seem like if good things happen to you on earth, then they won't happen to you after and yeah. vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's just, well, if you had it good here, it's going to be bad there. And if it was bad here on earth, it's going to be good there. Which, um, if that were literally how it worked, that, that's a little problematic, <laughs> right? Especially for those of us who have it fairly good uh, in mm -hmm. life. Um, and so again, this, this is part of the story, the way that a story like this works. It's just a reversal of fortune, right? Um, now, obviously, I think you can read into it a little more, right? It's not just that he had good things, but he didn't share them. He clearly, he clearly knows who Lazarus is, um, and yet he didn't help him. And so that's, right, it's not just that this guy was rich. He seems to be a little selfish with what he had. And so, you know, you could, you could argue that he's being judged for that. But again, if you just read what Abraham says to him. He doesn't say, you didn't share your wealth. He just says, you had wealth, and so now you suffer, which, again, a little bit problematic. We'll talk about judgment uh, in, a, in a later week, but I think we should hope that it's based on a little more than that. And again, it, it, so many things in this are just kind of amazing, right? P apparently, people in Hades can, can see heaven or, or Abraham and talk to him, right? Um, which that like they're far away and yet you can see and talk to each other. That seems a little odd. Um, and if you were in heaven, you can, I guess, watch people being tortured down there. Um, and I don't know, could you enjoy heaven if you were watching people be tortured all the time? If you like watching that, are you very Christ-like? I, I would say, I don't think so. And then this idea that, well, no one can cross from there to here. That's what Abraham says. Uh, again, I think that's that's serving a point to the story of saying uh, you can't. I, I'm not going to send Lazarus from here to go help you, right? Actually, the point of that is to is to show the selfishness of the rich man. He still wants Lazarus to serve him, right? Send him, this poor man that I never helped. Send him to come help me because I'm in a bad place, uh, right? It's showing that 
no, he can't come. Uh, but I think it's more about because you, you haven't learned a lesson, even though you're in here. Right. So all that, those showed, I think, some of the problems with just taking this is this is exactly what it's going to be like. It's also the question of, right, it never, this is a common thing we see where we import the word heaven when the word heaven is not used. That, that word's not used here. It just says Abraham's side or uh, in some fun translations, Abraham's bosom. Um, is that meant to be heaven? Is that the same? You could, you could argue that, but it doesn't say that as much. I just point out, again, there are fewer texts than we think that talk about going to heaven when you die. Right? We, it may be okay to use that language, but uh, so often that's not the language that scripture itself uses. And then you also have the idea of, of Hades, right? This is Hades, not hell. We talked a little bit about the difference before, but Hades, this really refers to the, the place of the dead. Right? Uh, it's roughly equivalent to the Old Testament idea of Sheol, right? that that was the place where uh, when you die, you go there. And it's not, in, in pretty much every other place, it's not a place of, of torture, right? It's more of, about waiting. And again, in the Old Testament, they seem kind of unclear exactly what the state was. Um, and, you know, there are plenty that say it wasn't really a good place, but it's never presented as a place of, of torment and torture like we often think of. Um, and so this would be the only passage that describes Hades, that, that in-between place, as a place of fire, fiery torture. So again, if it's the only place that talks about talks about it like that, I think we want to be a little bit more careful about saying, well, that's exactly how it is in the in-between. So instead, when we read this parable, we want to think about, well, what is it trying to teach us, right? And to me, the question is, are you living according to the future kingdom right now, right? Are you living in a heavenly way, or are you inflicting hell on other people, on those who are less fortunate, and maybe intentionally, or maybe just with our inaction, right? Uh, it's, it's a hard question, one we don't want to think about, uh, but I think it is relevant, and that's what Jesus was trying to say with this, with this parable. All right, any uh, final questions or comments about about rich man and Lazarus? Well, I think it's interesting that in verse 31, he, he brings up the fact that, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, you hear people say, and I guess we all have said from time to time, uh, Jesus, if, if, if you'd just come back now and show me, or Lord, if you'd just give me a, a miracle right now, mm -hmm. I, I, I would, it, it would increase my faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think here at the end of this passage, he's trying to also get that across that that uh, folks, it's not about miracles, and folks, it's not about some kind of grandiose something or other that God could do. It's about do you believe it in your heart? Mm -hmm. And that's where the that's where the belief has got to be. If it's not there, then no amount of other evidence is going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have reasons to believe what we believe, but. At some point, there's never going to be enough proof if you're unwilling to listen and and listen to what's already there, read what's already there, right? And so, uh, I think this is a clever way of pointing ahead to saying, like, look, even Jesus rising from the dead is not going to just magically convince everyone, right? And even if Jesus appeared again and had like a, a bonus coming before the second coming, it's not like that's going to convince every single person, right? We still have to have to make a decision and we have we have enough to to make that decision now 
And so that's, I think that's also relevant as we think about uh, our, our future hopes. No, we don't know everything. And, and as much as we're talking about it in this class, uh, it's, a lot of it is still unknown. And, and we're, we're guessing, we're trying to fill in the gaps. And hopefully I'm, I'm doing it well, but you know, there's plenty of gaps that are still there. And, uh, but we know enough. Right? And like I said, I do think it matters what we believe about how we think this story is going. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother. Uh, but uh, it only matters as far as it affects how we live now, right? how our beliefs about the afterlife affect this life. That's, that's why I think this is a, a worthwhile topic. And so again, and I think that's what this parable is doing. It's showing that, right, there are consequences, right? That's, that's pretty clear. How judgment works and what it's based on, that's, that's a, a bigger discussion. But how we live now matters. And, and it doesn't just matter for that life, it matters for this life too. And so if we have resources, whatever gifts we have, we want to make sure that we're using them in a way that blesses as many people as, as we can. And we bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth as much as, as we're able. So, all right. Well, thanks, everyone. I think that's, that's our time. We'll see you again next time.